there is much beauty with technology. Things that we are able to do in twice or as, as little time as we used to do. You can use technology to put data spreadsheets together to track business trends. You can use data to and technology to get a hold of one another no matter where you are. Those things that we used to have to stop and hope we had a quarter and put a quarter in and call somebody called a payphone that are essentially non-existent anymore. We're able to use technology in the midst of a fall to alert somebody. Technology in itself is beautiful in many ways. And yet, there's one problem that continues to increase with technology. The more we move identity and, and passwords and bank statements to technology, the more it seems that something is on the rise not for the good. And that's that of identity theft. Where hackers are hacking in and trying to collect information to be able to get your ID and pretend they are you by purchasing something in your name and to your account. When that moment of identity theft or, or that payment that you're like, what in the world is this? Where did this come from? That wasn't me, you tell the bank. I did not pay $800 at an H&M store. Identity theft is on the rise, pretending to be what you're not. But you know, there's also another danger of identity theft. Not only stealing that of somebody's identity, pretending to falsify information that you are them, there's identity theft in misrepresenting someone compared to what they have revealed themselves as. As we think about Christmas, as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we rightly identify him? How do we identify who this king is? Who this child laid in a manger is? Are we as bad as some and would only forever pray to baby Jesus, thinking I like to think of Jesus as nothing more as the one lying there in the manger? Or do we realize who he rightly is? Do we think he's simply a mode of God? Or do we think he is rightly God? And that's why we turn this morning to the gospel according to John. It is by no accident we turn here in John 1, 1 this morning. As we begin the next few weeks and spending these Advent weeks preparing the first coming of Jesus. As we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, we want to rightly set our minds on who is this Jesus who has already came and who it is we are longing to see. You know, the Gospel of John is a unique gospel in itself. We've already studied the Gospel of Mark in, in my short two years here. Why come back to another gospel? Why study this? Why study a book that was estimated to be written between 70 AD and 100 AD in Ephesus? Why study a gospel that seems to be the last recorded gospel account? Why study a gospel that is different than that of Mark, Luke, and John? Mark, Luke, and John are known as what is called the synoptic gospels. That means they have a lot of similarities. They, 
they mirror one another in, in small different ways between the three of them. While there's different accounts and different links of those accounts, it's mostly the same accounts. But then you come to the Gospel of John, like we're doing here beginning this morning, and it's a little different. It, it recalls actually different accounts of Jesus. It's not in other Gospels that we see this idea of the bread of life, the living water, or a new birth. These are unique to the Gospel according to John. Their themes are found in the other Gospel, but the stories are not. So why study the Gospel according to John? Well, for one, John gives us a reason why he writes this Gospel. His main idea, his purpose in writing the Gospel according to John is this. From John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John's purpose statement. That's his, his main point, his main idea, his thesis statement of writing this. I don't know how many of you have ever read deep research work on doing study. But as somebody writes an in-depth paper, they're required to have a thesis statement in it. That's one of the most foundational things you're, you're taught. Make a good thesis statement and make your points flow from that thesis statement. And that's what John is giving us here in this main idea. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Wait a minute, you may ask. Why as a church do we study a gospel with this kind of main idea why do we study a gospel with the idea to persuade, to believe? If we're here proclaiming and professing already to believe. Brothers and sisters, we cannot say that this gospel is past us. For one, to believe needs to always be increasing. We should always be growing in our understanding of this belief so that we can have a more deep relationship with the Lord himself. To grow deeper in our faith. So that's one reason we study the Gospel of John 2,000 years later. To grow deeper in our belief. But here's the bigger reality. How many of you have lost family and neighbors and friends that you would like to see come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? And you're left wondering, how do I reach them? How do I actually have a conversation with them regarding the gospel? By studying the gospel according to John. The gospel according to John, like the rest of the gospels, teach us who Jesus is, who Jesus said he was. And it gives us the tools and the equipment to understand who Jesus says he is so that we can weave through gospel conversations. Because like the war, that of identity theft, we have robbed Jesus of who he is by shortchanging his identity. Oh, he's just a good teacher. He's a good moral teacher. I like Jesus, but I don't like his 
church, or I like Jesus, but I don't want to believe he's the only way. Well, here's what John presents us with. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So Jesus is either who he says he is, the only way, or he's a lunatic. You ever thought of it like that? Christian, this is why we study the gospel according to John. To grow in our understanding so that we may rightly articulate who is this Jesus to a world in need of him. So that's what we do this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to John chapter 1 as we read the first five verses this morning. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord from John 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Five verses, packed full of rich truth of who Jesus is. So what do we take away? Well, here's what I think this is trying to communicate to us. 2,000 years later, and then, the Word, the Son of God, who is active in bringing about creation, is the one who has come to restore creation. That's the main idea. The Word... That is the Son of God, who is active in bringing about creation, is the one who has come to restore creation. And we're going to look at that in in two points that flow from this main idea. Point number one, the identity of the Word. And point number two, the work of the Word. So point number one, the identity of the Word. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Word? Kent Hughes, I think, gets it right in his commentary as he he thinks about this first verse in particular. He says, the simple sentence of verse 1 is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all of Scripture. Let me repeat that quote. The simple sentence of verse 1 is the most compact, pulsating theological statement in all of Scripture. And the reason here is because this is a statement of who is Jesus? Who is he? And it's complex and it's difficult to understand. It's loaded in three short statements. When it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. These are short phrases and yet they are loaded phrases. They reveal to us who is this word who has come to be made incarnate, to be made flesh. We run to the manger. We run to celebrate Jesus and his birth, but we don't think about his identity. And John here starts us off begging us to consider who is was that became flesh. So we see this unfolded in in three different statements. First, the beloved disciple here of John writes, In the beginning was the Word. 
In the beginning was the Word. This Word, which we know to be Jesus, was there in the beginning, before the beginning. He was there before anything existed. He was eternal. He forever was. There was not a beginning for this word. Hebrews 7, 3 helps us out on, on understanding this. It says, He, being Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And Melchizedek is compared to that of Jesus as one without beginning or end. This little phrase, in the beginning was the word, is to draw our comparison to that of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, it's to connect those two. That as creation was created, this word was already in existence. He was eternally pre-existent. He always was and forever will be. Do you realize... The Jesus we think of as nothing but a baby in a manger or one who went to the cross always was. He always was existing. Or as one dear brother put it, Jesus always was wasing. He always was wasing. In other words, there never was a time that he wasn't. When it says, in the beginning was the word. He doesn't have a beginning nor an end. Hence why this brother says he always was he. There never was a time in which he was made or created. He existed from eternity past and will exist for eternity future. This is the one who we celebrate at Christmas. This is the one who was in the beginning, was the word. But the second statement just adds to the confusion and the complexity of this. You've got one who always was. You begin to think that, wait a minute, this only can be God himself. But it, we see the second claim that the beloved disciple makes, and the word was with God. Wait a minute. Here you say in the beginning was the word, and yet we know from Genesis 1-1 that God created everything. So how can there be another there in the beginning? And how can he be with God? <laughs> no wonder some struggle to grasp what we as Christians believe. You know, our Muslim neighbors think we're crazy. They think we believe in three different gods. And right here is one of the complexities. They can't grasp. Wait a minute. How is one here that was with God and not a God himself, a distinct God. And yet at the same time, we must understand when it says he, the word was with God, he who was in the beginning was with God. This is language communicating that they were distinct people. They were not one and the same. They were not a different mode. There, there, there's a theological line out here that that's called modalism, that God appears in different modes as Father. He appears in the mode of Son. He appears in the mode of Spirit. But He doesn't exist in modes. There are three distinct people. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And they've always had this relationship with one another. Kent Hughes, again, is, is helpful. He says, he writes, the, the preposition with bears the idea of nearness along with a sense of movement toward God. When it says he was there with God, this with is the idea of this word, this Jesus drawing near to the Father, drawing toward him. This Jesus is distinct from the Father. This word is distinct from the Father. And yet, because they both have pre or eternally existed, they have always had relationship together. The two, along with that of the Spirit, have always had a relationship with one another. Christian, take this to heart. That means God was never lonely. This idea that God needed us in making us, he did not. He had a perfect relationship with the Son and with the Spirit. The three in one existed together in perfect harmony, in perfect unity from eternity past. And that is helpful for us when we begin to contemplate the idea of salvation. Because he didn't have to create us. He didn't have to save us. And yet he did. That's the beauty of why this doctrine matters. But more importantly, it becomes even more complex before we can begin to simplify it. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Wait, you just said he was with God, that he was distinct. And now you're saying he was God. The word was God. Surely now people are, are thinking we as Christians are lunatics because we think that there must be a plurality of gods. No. This is why doctrine matters. Because while this is a complex statement that he was with God and was God, there is a way that we as Christians have summed this up through the teaching of the whole Bible. And it is called the doctrine of the Trinity. Three existing in one. Three distinct persons existing as one God. Now this term doctrine simply means that it's a teaching that sums up a believed statement. That's all doctrine is. It's a way of summing up what we as Christians believe. But why get into the weeds here on the doctrine of the Trinity? One, because John 1 demands it. John 1, 1 demands we look and consider briefly the doctrine of the Trinity. But more importantly, we can't, without understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, we can't understand the beauty of what has come in salvation. Think about it. If we miss that this Jesus is also fully God and was with God in the very beginning, we miss out on the fact that the very God we offended in sin in breaking God's command is the very one who has come to save us. Huh. Jesus, because he's fully God, is the one we have offended in our sin, in our rebellion. And this is the same one who has come to rescue us, as we will soon see. But the doctrine of Trinity, while yes, it is complex, that's why we have creeds and statements as we have already read in the service from the Nicene Creed. We have statements called the Athanasian Creed, which is far longer, 
and it sums up the doctrine of the Trinity. We are helped throughout church history of how those who have gone before us have labored to sum up this doctrine and to help simplify it. One of those such is that of uh, the sixth uh, question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, how many persons are there in the Godhead? The answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God in same in the same in substance, substance, equal in power and glory. Let me reread that. The question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? The answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, and equal in power and glory. That's what it means to have one God. They exist as the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That they are one God, having the same substance, the same nature. They work together. They do not have their own agenda. Think about three generations of your family. Each one of those, in those three generations, are going to have their own ideas, their own opinions, their own agendas to set. I know we at least have multiple generations of, of particular families right here this morning. Just think about those two generations and the differences, the different likes, the different interests. And then to add a third in. The triune God doesn't. He doesn't have a different agenda. The Father doesn't have a different agenda from the Son nor from the Holy Spirit. They work together, carrying out the same purpose. For their glory. They create for their glory. They restore for the glory of the one God. They work together. That's the beauty of the Trinity. We see this triune God working together. We affirm the great Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is but one God. But it exists in these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they work together throughout eternity past into eternity future. Consider this as we turn our eyes to verses 2 and 3. It says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This Him here being the Word Himself, the Word made flesh, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God. He was in the beginning. He is the one who all of creation comes through and for. We see this summed up in, in Colossians. In Colossians 1.16 that we read in our call to worship, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So when we read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We understand that Jesus was the one at work in creation, being created. Because what does it say here in verse 3? All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In very God of very God, creation comes into the existence. Why? Why do we say all things were made 
through Jesus, through this word. Well, more importantly, because of the fact that what it is it that brings creation into existence. Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke a word. The triune God spoke a word. The word has come. And all things were made through the word. All things have come about by God speaking them into existence. By creating things. And how much more is he going to take that creation that has been tossed into sin and decay and speak a word to them of life once more? Christian, the word acts to reveal God most fully. The Son of God comes to reveal the triune God most fully. That's why the scriptures say that that which was a mystery hidden for ages has now been made known through Jesus because he perfectly reveals that of God himself. The Son perfectly reveals his plans and his way of redeeming a people to himself. And ultimately the word takes on flesh and he lives a life without sin and he dies to reconcile sinners to a holy God. This word is the one who is there in creation. Everything comes into existence through him. Hebrews 1, 1, 2 adds to this point. It says long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. These are the claims that the beloved disciple John makes regarding Jesus. And they're important for us to grasp. Yes, many of you are probably sitting here like myself in preparing and studying this with a headache because of trying to put these pieces together. But getting into the weeds of the Trinity is essential for us to understand the beauty of how redemption works. This triune God this God who always was, always existed together in perfect harmony, in relationship together, created a creation for themselves, for their glory, to display that glory. And even when it fell, when it rebelled against the glory of the triune God, the same God began to work to restore this creation. And they work together to bring this creation into a restoration, to be made new again. And that work is where we turn our attention to now in our second point, the work of the word. Again, consider this. We read there of John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. From the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden, sin and death reigned. From the moment Eve took of that fruit of the forbidden tree, that forbidden fruit, sin entered to the world. So did death. From Genesis 3 on, all we see is that of death, a culture of death. Genesis 5, and he died. 
and he died, and he died, except for Enoch, and he was not. Death reigned. Brothers and sisters, why do you think your bodies, as, as we get older, our bodies begin to hurt more? The aches and the pains, the joints begin to fall apart. It's a reminder that death is still reigning in this world. That death is still coming for each and every one of us. As diseases can still reign and have havoc, death is still at work. And yet, we're told here, here is this Jesus, here is this word. In him was life and the life was the light of men. This Jesus is bringing life. The whole Gospel of John is going to be hitting on this theme of life and light over and over and over again. How does Jesus introduce himself to the Samaritan woman? He says, if you would know who I am, you would ask for living water. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. But maybe most famously or infamously in John 3.15, right before the beloved, well-known John 3.16, Jesus tells that for whoever believes in the Son of Man will have eternal life. As they look to him, as the Israelites look to the serpent put on a pole, whoever would look to Jesus would have eternal life. How do you overcome death? By looking to the one who has life in Jesus. Life is in him and him alone. He is the one who has come to overturn creation, to restore it where life reigns, not death. And he's assured us of this in the fact that he died and rose again, being the first to be born among many who would rise from the dead. Jesus in his resurrection seals resurrected life for all who come to believe in him. Promising eternal life to them. You know, some scholars have, have debated about what, what this life here was particularly referring to. Some want to argue that this is, is referring to creation and, and the sustaining, which there is an element of that that is perfectly true. Jesus is the one who sustains. And in John, uh, Colossians 1.17, right after our call to worship, it says that all is sustained through him. That Jesus sustains and upholds all the universe. So even creation right now is being upheld. So life is, is held in Jesus sustaining it. But there is also, again, this allusion and reference to, to that of eternal life, of life everlasting in Jesus being communicated here. And that's what I want us to see. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. How do we come out of a dark world that is, is covered in sin? How do we come out of that? By looking to the one who has life in Jesus. Christian, that's where we need to remember as we're having that gospel conversation with somebody. That there is no life apart from Jesus. He and he alone is the one who brings life. Sin wants to tell us that life is found outside of Jesus. That we can actually fully live when we live in sin and how we won't. That religion somehow restrains you from enjoying life. 
You talk with anybody who doesn't believe, and there's going to be elements of this in what they think. They don't like Jesus or want to hold to the teachings of Jesus because they can't go do what they want. They can't go and, and run in sexual promiscuity. They can't do what they want in consuming sin because they think Jesus restrains that. And yet, true life is only found in Jesus. The ways of sin always lead to death. Our friends and family who are lost can live as they please in sin. But the reality is, they may think they're living, but apart from Jesus, death will come. The only way to life is through Jesus. And friend, if you're sitting here today and, and one that has yet to believe in Jesus, death is your end because death is still at work in this world. It's still coming to claim each one of us in the flesh, our mortal bodies, until Christ returns again. But the second death is coming for you if you have not believed in Jesus. The second death will come when you are judged and cast into the flames for all eternity where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because life is only found in Jesus. Apart from him, there is no life. That's why we proclaim Jesus and talk about Jesus because he is the giver of all life. The second person of the Trinity is at work to restore life to a dying world, to a broken creation. But how does he do so? Through becoming the light of men. The light that shines in the midst of the darkness and the fact that darkness has not overcome it. Christian, why do we talk about the gospel over and over again? It's not just some catchphrase. There's a lot of trends throughout church history. You look, there, there's trends of statements. Uh, we, we're all going to be all about discipleship for a season. We're going to all be about missions for a season. We're all going to be about this for a season. Why do we talk about the gospel? Because the gospel is the power of salvation. The gospel is what takes this light and shines it forth brightly. How is this light advancing? How is this light shining in the midst of this darkness? Through the power of the gospel that declares Jesus is the Son of God who has come to bring life to all of those who believe. That's it. That, that, that is a short summary of the gospel, of its message, and that, that brings life to all who hear it when that light penetrates through the darkness of their own vile hearts. When the light of the gospel shines, it penetrates through the darkness of hearts and minds. You know, we could look at, at this light and darkness and simply think this is talking about, you know, the darkness of evil and, and the light of good and triumph here. It is, but not in the way we often think. The way this light shines in the midst of darkness it's not the darkness of the world and, and things are just going to get better in this world. Christian, if you're waiting for things to get better and easier, you need to read your Bible. Because it doesn't get better until Jesus comes again. That's why we long for the second advent. We long for his coming when all is righted once and for all. Only in him will it be righted. Things will continue to get worse as we live in a broken world. Jesus has told us as much. 
But the way the light shines in the darkness, the way the light penetrates through that darkness, as it goes forth, it penetrates through this thick skull of ours and our hardened hearts. When we sin, our hearts harden and darkness reigns. When we sin, our minds are clouded and darkened. I'm nearsighted. I can take off my glasses and I can make out figures of each and every one of you. You who are familiar with the eyes, I'm at a negative five. If that shares with how nearsighted I am. I see parts of you, but I can't see you clearly. Sin does the same as nearsightedness. It begins to blind, to blur truth. It begins to, to help us where we can't see rightly and clearly. And therefore, sin begins to, to harden our minds and darken our minds little by little. More and more as we allow it to reign in our lives. That gospel light in the Christian life continues to shine forth and pierce through that darkness of each and every one of our minds and our hearts. So that we may draw nearer to Jesus. But it does the same thing in those who do not believe. This gospel penetrates through that darkness of their blinded eyes and their dull minds in which they cannot believe because of the hardness of their heart. This light of the gospel is the only way that the truth of who Jesus is will penetrate that hardened heart and, and blind eyes. This is why we talk about the gospel. This is why we talk about Jesus, because that's the only way this light is going to shine forth. It shines forth through the power of the gospel that declares who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what he's done on the cross. Christian, will you commit this, this Advent season to declaring this gospel, this good news, to declaring the light of this message to others so that they may believe in Jesus and come to the light of life? Because here's the thing. While, yes, things will get worse in this world, remember that last verse, or part of the verse of verse 5. It says there in verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Sin will still exist in this world. Until Jesus returns. People will still do evil. There will still be great evil in this world. But you know what? That world does not overcome the light. That darkness of sin does not overcome the light. Jesus in the end wins. And all that come to know him. Whose hearts and minds are enlightened by the gospel who come to believe in Jesus, that light continues to penetrate through. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what sin some of you are struggling with, but consider this. The fact that darkness does not overcome the light, keep reminding yourselves of this gospel, of this goodness, of who Jesus is, because that's the only way that the sin that you are struggling with will be put to death is through the light of this gospel, through the light of Jesus Christ. And you do that by confessing that sin. Sin 
manifests itself. It grows in darkness. But when it's exposed to light through confession and acknowledgement, a sin slowly dies because of confession, both to God and to one another. Friends, if you're struggling with anger, if you're struggling with particular sins, if you're struggling with remaining faithful, if you're struggling with whatever, find somebody you can trust and confess your sin to so that they can hold you accountable and encourage you back to the light of the gospel, back to the light, which is Jesus himself. Run to him and rest in him because he alone is life and he alone is the light that shines. Don't keep sin in darkness. But also know the victory's already promised. This morning we began to sing and we'll sing more and more Advent songs as, as we go, but we sing, come thou long expected Jesus. We long and expect for him because the victory is already promised. The victory is coming and it's in him. The world may seem worse and worse and worse and that's okay because our king is coming again and the victory is his. He will come and his light will shine brightly that none can miss it. Stop believing in all the ones who are going to try and tell you when Jesus is coming again and know that his light will shine so brightly and be made visible where none who believe can miss it. Look to that. Trust in that. The darkness isn't going to stamp out Jesus and his light. It will not stamp out the light of the gospel. It will not stamp out the church because the church is the means by which Jesus says he will advance his kingdom. Because where gospel churches are, the gospel is going to continue to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is the light that has come at Christmas. This is the word that has come at Christmas. Let us stop and marvel at who it is who has come. Very God, a very God has come to live and to die in order to rescue us so that we may have light to escape the darkness and know that the light will continue to shine and the darkness will not overcome it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace.